Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. When will you be enough? The question bothers me. I'm a fan of growing and striving and achieving, and to a fair degree, I feel it is a responsibility to do so. There are aspects of myself I'm not satisfied with, of my life as well. And yet, a primary tenet of emotional health is to be okay with yourself right now. Can you come to a place of being enough right now, even though you're not content to just stop and coast from here on in your life? Can you still be an aspiring person? So this is part three of my series on Peter Mutabazi, who lived a horrifically abused and neglected life in Africa from his birth in a small town outside of Uganda up to living on the streets till age 15, when thanks to an opportunity afforded to him by one family, he went on to attend and graduate from universities. He ultimately moved to America, where he's an entrepreneur, foster father, and now author of the book, Now I Am Known. I invited my brother, Jared Angaza, to co-host this discussion about Peter and his message with me, as Jared spent a decade in Africa working amongst street kids like Peter. We talk a bit about his experience over there. Our primary discussion landed on what Jared cited as the epidemic of enoughness that seems to span all of humanity, whether you lived on the streets and slept in a sewer in Africa like Peter, or you lived in a million-dollar home in Beverly Hills. You can find Peter's book, Now I Am Known, a self-help classic, in my opinion, anywhere and visit nowiamknownfoundation.org to connect with Peter and his incredible story. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast, subscribe, leave a review would be great. Best thing you can do is do what I do here with Jared. Take the ideas, the, the stories, the concepts and talk about them, discuss them ponder them, grapple with them. It'll help you and whoever you're talking with. You can always find and connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. You can actually see some of Jared's work there. He's the guy who crafted my new branding. Next up, my brother Jared Angaza and I discuss Peter Mutarbazi's story and this human issue we all deal with of being enough. Well, brother, as relevant as these topics of relationship and emotional health are to, I mean, to things that you can speak to, I admittedly, as I said in the intro, have you here because you spent a significant part of your life in the general region that Peter came from, uh, outside of, you know, a little town outside of Uganda. I don't remember the name of it. Yeah, he, he was in Kampala, right? I think so. Some, yeah. yeah it was I, I mean, I, I heard him mention Kampala in, in the in his book and in, in his discussion. Um, he is, uh, yeah. So Kampala, via um, Kamikaze bus, <laughs> uh, 
is about eight or nine hours from where I lived in Rwanda yeah. in Kigali. Um, so, and, and he may have been in some village or something outside of Kampala, but I know Kampala and the area around Kampala very well. I spent a lot of time there. Um, that's where I met the mother of my children. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I know. Well, and, and that was it because even as I had Peter on the show and you listened to the recordings of both shows and you know, steered it the direction of emotional issues, relational issues that we all have that he experienced in such an acute way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the story that he comes from me, I can't relate to. Uh, right. And you were there. Um, you, uh, you engaged with, I, I didn't want to say it sounds so unpolitically correct. Those people, but you know, people right. in those circumstances, the street kids, Ugandans. you got, okay. Well, but, but, but even people, I mean, there's, I guess I, I assume that there's some, you know, wealthy Ugandans too, but you know, on the streets, there are yeah. living on the streets, living in the sewers. Those are the people that you were in community with yes, and helping. And, and I, I have no framework for this and you lived it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, I mean, really for 10 years, I guess, but I, I was in Rwanda for five and Kenya for five in terms of where I actually lived. Um, and even that was split in you in Kenya between Mombasa and Nairobi. Um, but when I lived in Kigali, Rwanda, the capital there, I was in Uganda a lot. Um, and then, you know, when I met, Ilea, uh, through Scott Harrison, who had done a water project, Scott Harrison, you know, charity water. Sure. Um, I was hanging with Scott in New York, talking stuff, you know, just about life there. And he said, man, you're at the point where you need a country director. And I said, you telling me, <laughs> I know, you know one. And he texted Ilea from, he was in, we were in a coffee shop in New York and he was in, or in, and Ilea was in, I don't remember if she was in Kampala or in Gulu, which is north up towards Sudan. Um, and it's a, uh, it's not quite a border town, but it's closer to, it's, I think it may be the last town before the border there. Um, and they were in the midst of a civil war at the time uh, with uh, Joseph Kony, I guess, and his crew and against them, I mean. And they, uh, she was setting up uh, an academy for IDP kids, uh, internally displaced peoples. Um, anyway, and he just sent her a text and said, Hey, there's a guy here you ought to meet. Oh, she was working for Bob Goff, by the way, which I now saw pictures, um, of Peter uh, with Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Of Peter with Bob. Yeah. Um, wait, wait, let me uh, say, if folks don't know Bob Goff, he's the Love Does. He, uh, it was his first book, yeah. uh, Love Does, and I got to know him through Donald Miller, who testified to Bob Goff, yeah. I think, in A Million Miles, in Donald's book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Um, yeah. In that book, when you and I went out with Dad to meet together for that first story storyline. Storyline, yeah, yeah, from Donald Miller, the yeah. first one that that Don first, did, first conference he ever did, yeah. Um, I, you know, a little late to the table. I'm listening to the book on the way there on the airplane, <laughs> on audio, um, and I realized I was like, oh my god, 
this whole book is about Don's experience with two guys, Bob Goff in Uganda and Tom Ritchie in Rwanda. And Bob Goff is how Ilea got to Uganda and Tom Ritchie's how I got to Rwanda. Mm. We, we ran both those projects that Don was affected by yeah. and then wrote the book. And then I was showing up there to meet Don and, and Bob was there too, which I actually, I, that may have been the first time I met Bob. I've many, many, many times since then, but anyway, small world. I, I need to get him on the show. That's one of the people I've never pursued to get him on. I think he's got a new, a new book. So yeah, little do you know, you meet Ilea, you guys get married, make babies, all that stuff. But you're over there. And I mean, I remember your initial stories of being over there and just the life and the people that you were working with who were living on the streets and that you were in a house and all the houses are kind of gated off for security. And at some point, you know, you had a driver and I thought, dude, Jared's hit it big. You said, no, like everybody has a driver here, man. It's just kind of how it's just such a different world. Uh, (laughs) And and I remember one time, you know, you said something to the effect of being there helped you feel more. It was just so acute. Life was so acute. Survival was part of the deal. And it helped you feel more. And so again, so here I've got Peter on the show and he's talking about this stuff. My only relation to that kind of a lifestyle is you and kids living on the streets of which you ultimately adopted one. Indeed. One of the things that Peter mentioned, you know, often is that he, he was acutely aware of what he had, you know, at any given moment, like, oh my gosh, I have an orange, you know, not an orange, actually, that would be an, a banana, uh, wrong, wrong region. Um, and, and the, you know, I've got this food in front of me in, in this present moment, you know, living in that, in that region will really draw you to the present because, you know, at times it was, you know, things were dire. I did not have a driver in Rwanda, by the way. I, I had one in Kenya with some work stuff that I did later on. But in Rwanda, I, I rode moto taxis, probably much like Peter did. Yeah. Or 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 uh, um, these. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's little buses, um, and they little little tiny buses made for much smaller people than what are in East Africa. <laughs> They're made <laughs> yeah. in Japan and China, yeah. um, and. Uh, yeah, we would pack into those things and they were death machines. I mean, you don't want to hear the statistics, even in terms of the number one uh, cause of death of expats being there is traffic accidents. Really? And yeah. Because um, I look and, at it and think, man, I kind of like it. It's just kind of, you know, <laughs> everything to the wind. You know, you just go for it. It looks, it looks like a, it's like playing Frogger is what it looks like. I remember one time I was describing it and I said, um, if there was one word I could say for how they drive, it's careening, careening. careening. (laughs) no control at all. (laughs) Just like the brakes have gone. Everything's gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is not American driving. (laughs) And saw, he, he saw two things happen. (laughs) One was the, he saw a wheel go shooting off in the other direction. He's like, that was that ours. (laughs) And then, the second thing he saw was the driver jump out. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. And then it, it ended up in a riverbed. Well, and, and so there you go. I mean, this, this a lifestyle that here, as we speak from uh, America, I'm in Colorado right now. You're in, in San Diego. And um, 
again, you experienced that. And so to resonate yeah. with Peter, as I know that you did, you said it moved you significantly to hear that because you relate to, uh, the people who grew up like that, obviously you didn't, but you, you know, the, yeah. the people that grew up like that. And again, that's what stood out to me as I'm, I'm reading this, this is supposed to be like a memoir. And it's like, this is the most amazing self-help book because yeah. it goes through our primary issues that we all have with emotional health, relational health, the dysfunctions that we fall into because of traumas from whatever level. Now he, he obviously, you know, experienced them to a gigantic degree, but as you said, well, you know what I was, I was telling you chapter one and the big lesson I got out, pulled out that he shared was I no longer see myself as useless, worthless, or a burden. And I cut you off. Cause I said, hey, we got to record that. What did you say? Yeah. I mean, I run into people all the time, you know, living in wherever Beverly Hills or whatever it is, or I, I mean, I'm, I'm in a pretty affluent area in San Diego Yeah. Um, now. And I, I'm in a community of you know, healers and, and, and yogis and things like that and, and whatever. But the primary complaint or the discussion is the same thing. Like, I've, I'm not worth anything and no one cares about me. Blah, blah, blah. These people did not grow up like Peter did. Yeah. Um, and it's just this pervasive sort of disease, I think, that we have throughout the world um, for all kinds of different reasons and lots of different circumstances yet we arrive at a similar feeling. Um, and, you know, hearing his story, we can listen to that and, and think, oh, wow, that that's obvious that he would feel that way. You know, I hear from other people and where they're coming from, it's a little less obvious as to why they would be feeling that way, yet here we are. Um, it's interesting to hear his journey and and even now where he's at and the th and, and the beautifully meaningful things that he's involved in and the, the life-changing work that he's in and still struggling with that. Still that uh, emotionally and even financially, like you talking about that, you know, that whatever they had is what they had right then. He talks about that. I mean, he's yeah. uh, a prolific speaker. He gets paid a lot to speak. He's an incredible speaker. I hope people pursue him to speak. Um, yeah. He's, you know, learned how to flip houses and he's doing that. And yet, as I talk to him and even, even offline, he pretty much just, whatever he makes, he just gives away. He's just taking care of kids. So he doesn't save up stuff. And like right now he's saying, yeah, we need a van. I'm like, dude, you, you got income coming in, but he just uses it everywhere. And he's going to bring in more foster kids and more uh, adopted kids. And that concept of storing things up, which he talked about on the show, he didn't tout it. He just, man, that's just how I am no different than you know, he still has this perspective of being so broken that it's hard to be married and he's not as what he's, yeah, it was interesting to hear him talk about that 48 years old, single adopting kids and has a hard time in, in my paraphrase, inflicting himself on someone else. And I'm looking and going, it's yeah. like the sweetest guy I've ever met. We should yeah. get him on uh e-harmony or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I mean, and I, I understand that and and just feeling like I remember when when I first met Ilea and I, and I was saying, you know, and at the time and we can get into this, I assume we will. But, you know, I had a, a kid that I had adopted in Rwanda. And it was, you know, Francois, my child, Francois and I um, live in a pretty wild life. And I, and I was there as a 
human rights activist, women's rights specifically for the for the most part. I was involved in some other aspects too, but it was mainly focused on women. And I was a political activist, and you remember some of the stories, I'm sure. I was in and out of jail, and um, there are lots of other things that I didn't share with family that was going on that was wild. Um, and when I met Ailee, I said, hey, hey, just so you know, <laughs> like you are signing up for a world of crazy with my life. And I was really scared that I was going to be too much, just too much. Um, and it, it's, I remember the feeling of that burden, um, of feeling like too much, uh, because of the things I was bringing in, into that, you know, into anyone else's world. It was okay to, to be friendly at a party or something, or have a, a nice dialogue in the street or something. But then it was like, I didn't want someone to come in and see how intense and, and crazy my, my world was. Cause I felt like they'd scare them off. Yeah. Well, so, it, yeah, I understand some of that. Well, and back to your aspect of we've got people in the living in the sewer in Uganda, like like Peter, and people living in a multi million dollar home in Beverly Hills who have that feeling of being useless, worthless, or a burden. That was his line. And yeah. Now he also testified to the power beyond anything of his father's words who told him that. Right. And yet we still have to juxtapose that with the people who they didn't experience that they had, they may have had good parents and yet they still get to this point of, and I think I'm going to say you and I have, have struggled with that a bit too, of being very supported. And it, we, we took on a lot of ex- expectation, whether it was from our parents or just in and of ourselves. Cause we grew up in a world of bettering yourself of achievement. So you bring that on and into yourself to a level that you can't ever achieve and a lot of my life has been spent feeling like I just, I, I didn't add up to my own expectations. So I'm always a little bit disappointed with myself and you get to the feeling of that place of having a poor self image. And so here we are. Yeah. And it seems to be the human condition. How do we all come into falling into that place? I mean, I think it is it's one of the most primary human faults is that we do not think that we are worthy enough. Everybody else is but not us. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a lot of just a generally uh, high expectation of humans these days. (laughs) Like no matter where you come from, we feel it. It comes from our parents. If it comes from social settings, comes from work, whatever it is, usually all of the above. Um, where there's this expectation and you know and I then I think it comes back to like perhaps we all have that expectation from some area of our life or so, yeah. some people group in our life but then it, it comes down to how do we you know how do we manage that how do we feel about ourselves that's an emotional thing that's not a performance situation yeah so we have a performance situation that is going to be very heavily affected by however uh, mature we are in our emotional state um, and, and how we believe in ourselves. You know, I've, I've obviously we both have a gaggle of kids <laughs> um, and 
I often have said to other friends and even new parents and things like that, that like, I, I believe that the best thing, whatever, that I could give to my children is to, to build, to help build their confidence, to help them understand that they're loved deeply, no matter what. Uh, you know, and that's a multi-layered discussion. It's, there's a lot there, but just for, if they can grow up with that confidence um, we talk a lot about uh, people People struggle with enoughness. I think that's kind of what we're talking about here, partly, mm. uh, is mm. uh, are we enough? Is is Peter enough for a wife? You know, uh, am, am, are, are we enough for this job that we want? Um, it, there's one side of it of saying like we're too much with all the things that we bring. And then there's the other side of that of saying like, and and because of that, I don't feel like I'm enough of this or that for this person or for this situation. Um, you know, so I, I, you, you know, I practice a lot of indigenous beliefs and things like that. And uh, the, the Toltec, um, which come from the Inca, uh, long, long discussion there, but the Toltec believe that we are born perfect um, hmm. and that we there's never anything that we have to do to win the love of God or to win the love of someone else or to be enough for something or anything like that, but that we are born perfect. And I'm teaching my children that, you know, we're born perfect. Now there's this discussion of like, Oh, well I can't be perfect or whatever. I'm like, that's not the point. <laughs> like it's already done. You don't have to do anything. You're already enough more than enough. Um, I'm doing that because I I I want my well first of all I believe it, <laughs> but second of all, I want my children to just to understand that there are all kinds of things that we will do, all kinds of things they will do on their own and be involved in. They will succeed and fail, air quotes, um, and and all kinds of things, but none of that affects their worthiness. They're already perfect. <laughs> Um, and, and I, I, I think that is a, that's a message I wish I heard a lot more of in parenting and through social media and everywhere else. I, I do too. Okay. I love your term enoughness, um, that it's almost, I don't know, did you phrase it this way, but it sounds like that's, yeah, that's the illness that we're dealing with is. Yeah. Not enoughness. Not enoughness uh, in every way, shape or form. Again, no matter where you came from, no matter what you were told. Well, and that is frustrating to me or gosh, it's just, it's a burden, Jared. I mean, so you've got, so your oldest, uh, well, no, not, not Francois, but oldest biological kid is yeah. Sarah. She's 10, right? Yeah. And you know, my oldest is what? 27. And, you know, seeing the kids, come through that time and they're young, like where yours are. And they generally can't, I mean, you know, if they're not beaten down and especially if they're given love, support, attachment, all those types of things. And they're pretty good. You know, they're pretty good with themselves overall. They, they, they have high confidence and we expect that we want them to have that. And then they hit whatever, you know, you say it's an age, but a level of maturity, whether that's you know, it could be 11 for some kids. It could be 15 for others. I don't know, but I've seen it with the kids where they become self-aware and they become socially aware. And I, I, I talked about this recently with somebody, I think it was even on a show. I struggle with comparison. You right away, 
begin comparing yourself, even school, little kids in school and going, oh, well, you know, Susie runs faster than I do. And Jake is better at math. And, you know, Sarah is better at that. And they start to be aware of these things and they start to, you see them start to come down and start to be self-aware. And then all of a sudden you end up with this, you know, teenager who's struggling with their self-image and I'm looking at it going, my gosh, it's, it's such, again, this natural aspect of humanity. So I'm where you are. How do I do my best to love them unconditionally to, well, heck it was a big change. I wish it was longer ago. Jared, um, that I started backing off of congratulating my kids for their performances. How can it not be natural? I mean, the kid wins a race. What are you going to do? Ah, you know, it was subpar. I mean, I know you have won the race, man. I'm, I'm sitting here on fire. It was awesome. Who doesn't love to see that? And, and yet yeah. having to come down and go, um, man, I'm really proud of your effort. I'm really proud that you did that as opposed to you won, you know, you beat everybody, whatever. And just trying to change some of those that it's not based on, but I did that. I didn't know any better. I mean, it's just a natural aspect of humanity to look at the performance yeah. and say, good grades, man, you're on the honor roll. My kid's on the honor roll. How many bumper stickers do we have? For that? I mean, that's what we tend to do. And then we get a kid who is, yeah, looking at themselves and the performance doesn't stay there. So how do we, and I think you're doing this with your kids. And I, I don't think I did it as well, especially with my younger ones of saying, man, I, you are worthy period, not because of X, Y, Z, not because of what, and yet it's still struggle because you're still going, yeah, you you do need to get your grades up though. We're we're not really looking for you to flunk. Um, love you. You're worth, you're, you're enough. That that F's kind of not enough, but I should, and there's the tension. Right. But even that, it's like, it's not enough for this game that we're playing, which is getting you through school. True. So you pass True. And, and education, hopefully along the way. <laughs> um, and, and probably some, you know, social uh, experience and things along the way. Yeah. You know, that's why we do the school thing. And I, I think along the way, though, one of the things that I do with, with my kiddos is, when they win something or, or or do really well at something, I, I and rather than oh my god you won it's amazing that you won, sure that's cool. The other side of it is it's amazing that you had so much fun doing it. Yeah, like oh I'm so gra- gra- grateful that you had so much fun. That's so great. Yeah. I love that you loved that. Um, you know I, I love seeing the joy on your face. You know that kind of thing. That. Um, yeah. That's, that's been a, a shift as well partly and again you know like i'm a word person mm-hmm. <laughs> words matter yes they um, and, and I mean, we said that in the last podcast uh but i i'm always kind of picking apart my own words yeah as part of my profession obviously but also as a father, then I, I carry that over there and I think, okay, well, what do I really mean? What do I want to say here? Because I don't want to just say the thing that just kind of rolls out. It's what dad say, you know, or whatever it is. Um, it's like, well, what do I really want them to understand in this moment? Cause moments matter, mm-hmm. uh, more than words, honestly. Uh, but the moments matter and that's what they remember. Uh, so I think, okay, how do I want to show up in this moment? So I've thought of things like that. I'm so grateful that this made you so happy. I'm so grateful that this brought you so much joy. 
And then they're remembering, I think subconsciously, maybe they come back to that and think, actually, he didn't really talk about the performance part. <laughs> it was actually just the part about me being happy. Hmm. And, and that, that seems to be important. Um, again, a lot of the Toltec stuff that we talk about it is, is very focused. It, and I should say this is pretty consistent across all indigenous wisdom over in the Lakota, I can tell you the same stuff, or Hawaiian, uh, the same traditions in talking about uh happy it's it's you know we hear in the zen world and buddhism world happiness is the way you know to, you you become happy um and and then and you follow that way rather than doing things to try to make you happy and so on and so on but just to i i think the focus on the emotion side of it rather than the achievement is the important part there and I think so few of us ever get that. And our parents were amazing, still are. <laughs> um, and we're very, very fortunate and blessed. But they didn't have the emotional maturity at that age either when we were little ones. They got married when they were, mom was 19 or something. Yeah. Um, and they did not have great role models as parents. Uh, you know, our grandparents were, were nice to us and whatever, but they weren't great parents to our parents. <laughs> no. um, and they, you know, they did not have the emotional maturity. And they, thank God, somewhere along the lines, you know, we're learning more as generations go on about emotional intelligence and the importance of that. And now to, to bring this back into Peter's world yeah. too, in, in East Africa, uh, emotional intelligence is not something that's a big discussion, man. I mean, it's hardly coming up at all. The reason being, I think, just most obviously, is because the focus has been on survival for so long. Just living through the day is a big deal. Um, and to be able to, you know, for me to live in a place like that was powerful. And I'm so grateful that I did. Again, I think we've talked about this before. I'm happy that I did some meaningful work. <clears throat> and and I have some evidence that it it served humans well that I was there serving. But again, the biggest thing that happened was what happened to me living in that space. My response to a lot of people was like, "Well, you never forget that you're alive." <laughs> <laughs> because you're you're often faced with not being alive. Yeah. or or whatever the struggle is it's it's reminding you of the beauty of life um what, and tuning into that and and I wanted to bring that out i mean you know so peter's story is it was so harsh externally yeah nothing was yeah. given anything was taken that he's either going to be overcome by it, which, uh, you know, uh, obviously to his story, most people were, I mean, most of the kids on the street that he knew are dead now. I mean, they didn't make, yep. he made it out the way he made it out was being able to transcend all that stuff and come to himself, which he's, as he shared, yeah, he's still working on. I mean, it's a constant work in progress for all of us, but my gosh, look where he's come to. And he had to transcend that stuff and be aware, become aware of himself which is again, why I had him on the show. It's what was so profound to me that that's what we're all looking at is can we transcend that the, the history, the experiences we've had, the negative stuff, the stuff that's brought us down and even the stuff that exists today, because we can't be in a perfect environment today and come to ourselves and be able to look in the mirror and as you back to what you said and be 
enough. I, I think the more that I chew on this, and I've got a couple shows coming up that are going to continue this message, it feels like it's the biggest brainwashing that we need. And, and we, we hardly have, it's like speaking a new language. We just don't know that language to look in the mirror and be enough, man. We, we just don't have that language. The only way that we understand being enough is by doing or having enough. Without that, where would social media be? It's, it's kind of what it's built on. It's all we got, man. And yeah, and it's a, we hard- have a society built on that. And, and specifically American Western, I should say society, <laughs> we could say most of society, Western society for sure, and America is really winning the trophy. We are we are leading the game, and and as you said a minute ago, though you mentioned, oh, in regards to school, playing the game, right? Here, yeah. you and I were having this discussion, and you've partnered with me to help me play the game and make my website look great, make me look great. And all the image stuff and, all, and, and identity and all that stuff. My, yeah. And, yeah. We, and we lead with my achievements because without that, if I don't play that game, there's, I mean, at some point nobody's going to listen, which sounds terrible. Message, these messages don't get heard because there's a machine that's running. Mm-hmm. There's a way to, to play in that machine. And if you don't, then you're just some guy with a great message that might as well just go shout at the tree. Um, it's not going to matter that much. Uh, so you have to play the game well enough. You mentioned la- the language of, you know, emotional language, I think is what we're kind of getting at earlier. And uh, it is a, there's a language that's spoken, you know, on this, on the social media webs out there. Um, it's my job to understand that language and then to be able to bring meaning into it. Um, you're, you have a, a message of substance and I can see a, a language being spoken out there, if you will. And I, and I have to go, okay, now how do I connect these worlds and not make it superficial and not take I'm, the meaning out of this one? Over I, I'm here? just thinking, how do you, how do you make me, uh, well, we'll use me. How do you make him sound credible and not egotistical? I think you've done a masterful job. Everybody go to kevinmiller.co and see how, I mean, we, we tried to walk the walk and you tried to take myself and me saying, oh, dude, I just, you know, I want to be humble. And you go, okay, but you got to be credible. Okay, how do you do that and not be egotistical? Yeah. And then there's the the stuff. And I've been walking through what you have done for me with this branding and positioning and whatnot with some other people. And that has been their primary hang up. And they get it, but they're going, oh, so I got to, put my picture on there. Yeah. Like a bunch. And I got to showcase what I've done. Well, yeah. Cause if you haven't, you got to give some people, you got to give people a reason to listen to you and not someone else. Go. This is a great segue into being known. Um, Peter's That's book. a great book title. <laughs> now I am known by yeah. Peter Mutabaz. When you first said something to me about Peter and mentioned the name of his book, I went, oh, wow. He, like, when I, I help people with naming things, as you know, often, um, and and looking at, you know, when I see a name choice like that, you know, it it, it tells me, you know, now I am known. It, 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 it tells me that, that was the you know that was the thing that stood out to him and his journey along the way you know to feel known is so important 
And and there, you know, for, to, to resolve the point we were just talking about real quick, the, you, what we're doing is we're giving people information about you, Kevin Miller, so that they may know you uh, and, and feel like I'm not just going to give my time to anyone. But if I feel like I can resonate with you, then I will give you my time. But I cannot feel a feeling of resonance until I know you. So I need to know certain things about you. It's part of my job to think of your audience and what it is they may want to know about you. And then I will extract just those points and leave everything else out <laughs> and, and craft that into a beautiful little story. Uh, in a language that they're speaking that's familiar to them. Yeah. Because we're all drawn towards the familiar more than anything else. That's that's our biggest draw. You'll see that in the street kids st scenario all the time. Um, he talked about that. Peter did with his, you know, I, I didn't want shoes. <laughs> like Someone was giving me shoes and I didn't want shoes. Yeah. Uh, he's like, I didn't need shoes. I dealt with that with Francois in the beginning as well. Um, and, and then I made the decision at that time too. I said, well, don't wear shoes. I don't care, man. If you want some shoes, we'll sort it out. And if you don't, don't wear shoes. And just because you're going with me to some dinner thing, you don't have to wear shoes. I don't care. <laughs> I'll take my shoes off too. <laughs> um, and, and we did that. I was like, matter of fact, seems like a great idea. <laughs> no shoes. Um, and we did that. And, and that really helped him feel seen, I think. Uh, and like he didn't have to come fit into the Mzungu, which means white man or rich man. Unfortunately, it's the mm -hmm. same same word. Wow. Um, and uh, you know he'd have to be in the Mzungu world. Uh, and I said, no, man, I'd rather be in yours. And by the way, for the first three, four, four years, maybe um, he did not speak any English at all. And I didn't have him learning English. I learned his language, Kenya Rwanda, which is only spoken in Rwanda, the tiniest country in Africa. <laughs> um, and I think maybe Mauritius might be the tiniest, but uh, it's the size of Maryland, the entire country of Rwanda. Yeah. And I learned his language because I connect with him. I wanted to learn from him. Um, I wanted to understand even maybe more about myself through entering his world rather than him just coming over into mine. I never brought him to the United States because that was a, I had left. I hadn't lived in the, in the States in years. Um, it was just, yeah, I, I think what I, what I recognized in becoming a father to Francois is his desire to be seen and to be known. So that when, when I heard about Peter's book, I, it really resonated in that way and recognizing how many, how all of us want to be seen and known. I talked to my kids about that a lot and saying like the, the, one of the greatest gifts you can give to anyone is to help them feel seen and understood. And, and, you know, sometimes with Sarah, I'll say, Sarah, are you helping Zion to feel seen <laughs> and understood or are you just pushing it your agenda on him um and i have to ask myself that all the time I, and i wanted to pull that out because as we all as you say that we all at that core of us we want to be seen and heard and you know first thing that hits in my mind that if you want to be seen and heard best way to do it go see and hear people um, yeah, go kind of that aspect. You want friends, 
go be a friend. And man, we just, again, it's not a cultural education that we get. You go out there and get what you can, take what you can, impress people. Um, I, I do want to come back to you talking about survival though, Jared, because um, that's a point of Peter's that again, stuck out to me. And I, I wanted to talk to you about it because you have spent a good amount of time putting yourself in hard situations. We've talked about that before. It's, it's awesome, but you, you learn to survive. So you're, you know, you're a survival. You got great survival uh, skills. That's great. And I, but I love how he talks about that as really good for when you need them. It's not necessarily how you want to live your life. And again, he, yeah, I know he's, he's living in acute in an acute way, but it made me turn around and look in the mirror and go, how often do I do that? Not in all areas of, of life. You know, if you go onto my social media, you of course, I'm going to put the places where I'm thriving, you know, where there's lots of abundance, not the ones over here where I'm often tend to be in survival. I do just enough and how we tend to, again, do that no matter where you came from, what gender, what age, what socioeconomic, whatever, that we tend to find the path of least resistance, kind of get comfortable and then just do enough to maintain it. And coming back over to him, he's saying, yeah, there's some benefit to that, but it's not thriving. I mean, who's sitting there listening to this show right now feels like they are overall, you know, thriving. And again, I would look at certain areas, man, I, I definitely have places in my life where I am thriving right here, right now, man, thriving. And I have some areas in my life where I'm just kind of scooting on survive. That's not thriving categories in my life. And again, I love his exaggerated perspective on that, that he came from. And yet we're back to, it seems like we're still kind of in the basic human condition. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we sort of pride ourselves on being great survivalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how many shows are on Netflix or whatever about surviving. Well, MacGyver, cool man. Option. I love MacGyver. Yeah, you get a toothpick yeah, and a piece yeah. of leather and he can make a helicopter. It's awesome. It, he didn't have a lot of relationships, though, did he? <laughs> they did. They, you know, fair, fair enough. He was kind of alone. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never thought about that before. But yeah, I, I, I you know, I'm the kind of guy and Peter, maybe too, I don't know, but, or even you, like, I, I know how you are out in the wilderness, but, um, because of the things that I've lived through, I'm the guy that you call when Armageddon hits, you know, <laughs> like, all right, well, we'll sort it out. I, I, I do well in that environment. But man, when I came back here to the United States after living the life that I was living and, and mind you, I wasn't, I obviously wasn't a street kid, you know, living in in the streets in East Africa. I was a human rights advocate and an informant. And I was uh, living in a a rough world. Uh, I I saw the worst end of those places uh, and lived in those places. And coming back here, man, I felt like I came in in a F-15, you know, fighter jet or whatever and hit the ground and dug in about 30 feet. And I've been trying to find my way out, you know, Hmm. since, Hmm. um, I said that at one point, I think I'm out now. (laughs) I found my way out, but, um, it's still still a great perspective on trauma, but anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Or like eight years later now, man, since I got back from there and I, man, I remember thinking like, Oh my God, everybody's asleep. And thinking like, 
how do people even know that they're alive here? Everything's just on autopilot. Um, I, I remember really, your first, your first thought, your first, some of your first statements was, I just got to figure out how to get back out of here. I can't handle America at this point. I almost lost my mind. I remember some. Yeah. A few around me may have said, may, may, agree, may think that I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it was so hard to be here. Uh, there, I, 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 and I remember saying over and over again, at least there, I always knew I was alive in East Africa. I always knew what uh, I, I, I knew how to appreciate at one of those tiny little bananas that they have there that are so magnificent, um, or an avocado or, or whatever it was. It was like th those, those little things and those moments that we had sitting together where we'd all come together for some gathering at a house and we've been planning for a week or whatever. And then we get there and, and the water and the power goes out, uh, like right in the middle of everything. And you don't stop. You just sort of reconfigure a bit and everybody just stays in pitch black sometimes. Um, and then you have a moment. And I was here in America and I was like, where are all the moments? Hmm. I need moments. I'm craving moments. Of, of realizing that I'm fully alive. Um, and, and I was not short on those in, in Africa. Uh, you know, and I was in Costa Rica in a totally and completely serene, comparatively, environment. Um, and a beautiful situation there. And, and I felt like I could still find beautiful moments of elation there that I couldn't find here something specific about America that I, I had a, th with the machine that's running all the time that I had a hard time, you know? So I think about what Peter's experience has been here and how much more bravery I see in him and living in the East coast where he lives now um, in the South, no less uh, as compared to, maybe even what I would feel for him living in Kampala. Yeah. Um, and, and even for me living in Kampala, like that feels like something I can do. I know the streets. I know the ways that things work. I know what to say and not to say who to be around and not be around all that kind of stuff. You know how to do little, you know, things you got to do to survive on the streets, which he talked about a bit, taking a banana here and there and whatever. Um, and I understand that. Uh, being back in America, there is a, a very specific machine that is running. And and that's why a part of my work has been not just me figuring out things for clients, like we talked about before in the language of things and how to bring things together. It was also just for my own survival. It's like a new way of having to survive here. Yeah. Um, and, and it's one that is much more... Well, we talked about... Uh, well, one of the things that that uh peter talked about is how he uh th there's this myth that changing someone's environment changes you just you totally stole my thunder man i was about to i was about ready to land the plane and say okay here's where i want to land with you and that was it <laughs> Can, can I, right can I, can I, riff? Yeah, well, let me riff just like I was literally yeah. going to say that this is where I, this is kind of where I wanted to anchor, um, on this thing because yeah, he said that, that we tend to the myth, if we just change someone, so I'm literally reading off my notes or, or from the book, if we just change, if we just change yeah. someone's <laughs> circumstances, we'll automatically change their life. Yeah. And I, 
so again, here we are on this aspect of trying to be enough, trying to have enough. And yet we have someone like Peter and I've got a show coming up with a guy. I'll show you the book. The book's not out yet. Um, but it's a book called the good life by Rob uh, it's written by two guys, but Walt, I had Robert Waldinger. He's the professor of psychiatry at Harvard's medical school. I mean, you know, he's kind of at the top of the heap academically and they've had one of the longest studies, the world's longest study on, uh, of happiness, um, 70 year study. And they're coming back to, and what, and, and of course with them, I'll get to the punchline. Here's here it is. And it's relationships. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And it's not all the stuff that we are trying to achieve. So here we are and trying to change someone's circumstances. Now, again, I was going to bring that to you because you've seen that acutely in taking someone from the gutter and just trying to change things. Man, we'll give them clothes, a shower, food, shoes that they don't even want. And, and we'll just change everything. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't erase, as he said, it doesn't erase the trauma. But again, back to what you talked about with, you know, whether it's someone in the sewer in the U- Uganda or someone in Beverly Hills, it's a human condition that here we are striving to change these circumstances. And yet, so as you came from a life over there with the least of these, which is a term that I relate to you, uh, having worked with the least of these, and now you're often rubbing shoulders with the next billionaire, you know, in Silicon Valley or, you know, in the space industry or whatever. Yeah. And I got to figure, again, I think you've seen that more acutely than I have, but I've seen it too and realized in the circumstances, it's what are we trying to achieve here? Because it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. We got just as many depressed people coming from all situations and not to diss it, man. I'm stoked to have, you know, a, a house and to be able to buy the food that I want and have a cool mountain bike. I mean, I, I use, I mean, it gives me great joy. I'm not dissing that stuff, but to say that's going to make us happy I, again. So that's what I was, you, you brought it up. Um, and, uh, that's where I was going because I, I know that you have and continue to see that in such an exaggerated way to some degree. Well, and it's complicated. It's complex. Like most things that matter. Uh, because on one hand, we can deduce from that that the environment doesn't matter. Um, however, I would say that let's let's dive into that a little bit because because yeah, I'm sure Peter is, would say, yeah, I dig my house today as opposed to the sewer. I will take that. I'll, I'll, I'm good at that circumstantial right. change. Environment matters a lot, uh, and you know, I'm a. I think there's the you know, it's nature and nurture that makes us, you know, to to get into the Darwin side there, but. The, it's what's in the environment that matters. And, and I think so often what we think is, here's a kid, just as an example here, since we're in that territory, to say that, you know, here's a kid living in the streets in Kampala uh, with, a, you know, an abusive family situation and um, uh, doesn't have, you know, shoes on their feet and so on and so on. So... Let's put them in a different situation with a non-abusive family situation with clothes and shoes and food and 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 it fix all the survival things. Now we're done. You know, <laughs> it's all taken care of. So and then and then that doesn't work. And then we say, okay, so the environment didn't work. Again, it's more complex than that. 
I think what we can do is look at that and say, okay, look, what was taken care of was the survival aspects of life mm -hmm. that changed. The survival aspects uh, were, were rectified, if we could say, just, just to simplify that. Um, however, what we realized then at the end of the deal is that that's not enough to just survive. We have to have something more. What is the something more? And it is going to be emotionally founded, and it's going to end up in what you just said a minute ago, relationships, hmm. um, and the health of our relationships. And I think it was clear from Peter's discussion that he, while he is is uh, has some fear around being married, he also at the same time yearns for it and 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 does want that but there's fear around that so now that he's figured out his own survival and something of meaning that he's doing in other people's lives he still yearns for something else you know there's still something else there that that, that, that he's yearning for after all that stuff that everybody can look at and be but peter you've done all this he's like yeah i'd kind of like to have a wife though <laughs> and, and and i'm but i i feel i'm scared of that because of x you know all the things so and and i in my world of being a great survivalist you know and, and being you know and someone that's always i'm a strategist i get paid to work people's problems out all the time uh and, and i can do all that stuff you know but i have things that i yearn for that i still need in my life it's only been in the last probably four or five years that I've really started to understand the importance of emotions and emotional intelligence and all that that we keep talking referring to and and recognizing that an, another thing that I for instance it's clear that Peter is confident in his ability to father to act as a foster parent and in a in a, in a yeah. uh, adoptive parent to these other children he's confident in that he keeps doing it and he's doing it well so he's confident in in doing it. It takes a lot to step up to the plate to make all that stuff happen, as you know, in adopting a child. Um, yet, it sounds like he may also still suffer from some not enoughness and that feeling. I mean, he, he spoke to that. Um, yeah. So I realized years ago, <laughs> I don't mean to say that I sorted it out since, <laughs> but I just realized it years ago, and I'm on that journey since, Um of because someone asked me actually it was a therapist asked me um and, and she said you know she pointed out the fact that i'm i am very confident in some ways and, and not in others and we talked about that I, i'll just deduce it down to saying that when it comes to working with a client or or, or a partner whatever it is business partner i i'm very very confident you can't shake me i i'm I, I practice i study i'm good at what i do i have a 25 year track record i am 100 confident i will step up to the plate with anybody and i've had years of going home and crying on my little pillow at night about not feeling like enough it's too, it's different things yeah am i enough to be the husband or the 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 father that i want to be that's a different thing than am I confident in my trade or my craft? That's different. And a lot of times in America, we confuse the, or the Western world, I should just say in general, um, we, we confuse the two and, and we say that, oh, no, no, you know, Bob's real, especially the masculine world, the, the male world, um, uh, you know, Bob's real confident in, in his ability. He's a confident guy. 
maybe, but I don't know how Bob feels when he goes to sleep at night, <laughs> you know, um, or, or in his marriage or in his fatherhood or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, there's another discussion that we need to be having about that, about our, our feelings of enoughness in the things that we care about most. I'm grateful that I'm a good strategist and that it pays the bills and whatnot. That's cool. But that's not what fulfills my world, mm -hmm. you know, being the father that I want to be or, you know, things like that. Those are things that fulfill my world. It's just been over the last few years that I've started to give that the space that it deserves hmm. and to recognize that um, while I am confident in my work, I've had a lie in my head that I didn't deserve to be paid well for it or that I didn't deserve, you know, recognition for it or something like that. So I just duck out the door before any of that happened. So I, I see stuff like that. And we see these heroes like Peter that are living a heroic life and still struggling with that feeling of not enoughness. It, it reminds me, uh, Jared, of dis the word discipline, because I get that attributed to me so often, you know, as a pro athlete yeah. today, I'm almost 52, you know, and I'm out and running and gunning and doing this. You must be so disciplined. And I want it. I want him to change and go, you must be so disciplined in that activity. I'll say, yes, I am actually. Thank you. <laughs> There's some other activities I am not yeah. so disciplined in. And I look at you and I, I, that's what gets me is when I see people who will attribute discipline to me. And then I will, if I audit their lives, I'll find some areas where, oh my gosh, man, they're second to, to none in, in discipline you know, with their finances or something, but they're just looking at their health and wellness, or they're looking at their, you know, maybe they're super disciplined with their relationships, but they're not over here in their spirituality, you know, X, Y, Z that, yeah, we discount yeah. ourselves and can we hold both? And I like your perspective of confusing competence with that overall enoughness and self-image again, man, this is what I, I loved hearing Peter just talk through his journey and his trauma and his PTSD. And um, I did one thing you said though, Jared made me think here for the first time, in, in essence, you know, looking at our environment, and of course we want to, you know, we like good things and we want comfort and security and achievement and whatever. Will that make us happy in and of itself? No. But to what you said, as you were saying, okay, we can't, we're not going to dis environment. Okay. Granted though, environment, having a certain environment can open up the possibility for opportunity that we don't have in survival. Thank God for survival. But when we're just there and we are in a limiting, a detracting environment, it's harder to have the opportunity for certain things. So as people look at that, but what it made me think though, too, is back to looking in the mirror is going, okay, when I'm looking at this achievement that I want, this environment, I want to change. Why? What does it open the opportunity for? Because it in and of itself will not make me happy. We have seen that. We've got how many movies and stories and whatever about somebody who climbed the ladder of success, it's the wrong ladder. That's not, what is it? What's at the core of that? And as I do that more, it helps me to get to the root issue of that achievement. And sometimes it shows me that, oh, I don't actually even want that achievement. The why I can achieve somewhere else. I don't need that thing. So um, yeah, you brought me to that perspective on that one again well and th and there's a trauma aspect of this too that we should be sure to touch on because obviously peter went through a tremendous amount of trauma 
in all kinds of ways. Um, certainly sounds from his father as a major yeah. source of trauma. Um, you know, if, if you get mauled by a bear, you know, and, and I come and find you in the forest and pull you out and get you bandaged up and get you in a hospital and you get all physically healed up and whatever, that's great. I changed your environment from getting mauled by a bear to not. And all of a sudden, you know, or at least over a little bit of time, you're, you're physically healed and so on. But what happens when you start having nightmares? I was going to say, but I'm not going out in the woods ever again. (laughs) I am a trauma. I mean, yeah, that's, there's, there's where we are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there, and there's aspects of that. Like I, I, you know, Peter could have also decided I'm never going to be a father, you know, obviously thank God he did it. Um, that there has, he's facing his trauma and what I, the delusion that we're referring to when we talk about the environment issue is that just changing the environment heals the trauma yeah. and that is not the case it it what it does is it is it uh it kind of pulls the knife out of the wound and says now we can begin to heal because it when it's still there we can't begin to heal yeah. peter back in his old environment probably would have had a hard time beginning to heal um especially if we just sort of like froze him at that age you know but now through becoming older and, and the, just some of the natural maturation journey and being out of that environment entirely and into what becomes a, a very, very easy environment, relatively speaking, living where he does now, yeah. um, that environment shift has just provided a platform for him to heal. Now, it did not heal him. It made it possible to heal. Yeah. Um, and I think so often we stop at the possible heal stage and don't go on to the other levels of healing. Yeah. And then we're left at the end of the day saying, you know, well, the environment changed. Why didn't it work? And I'm like, well, that was just the beginning. <laughs> now you get to start on the journey of emotionally healing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, we need to go beyond even just healing emotionally, I think. Again, then, okay, so now we're back up to a zero great (laughs) like then where do we go to thrive beyond that and when you're in an environment like what peter grew up in getting beyond survival is almost unfathomable let alone to thriving well so there's my reason to shamelessly plug his book i mean again i think it's going to get labeled as a as a memoir and an overcoming story but I had him on the show and we're talking about him in the third show now because I want people to do what I did, get to go through the book and see the journey as he goes through these things and then comes out the other side with grace, with compassion, with forgiveness for himself, for the people who abused him and over it overcame and is still overcoming these harsh personal issues we all have around our emotional health around our relational health and as he strives to be uh known and his primary effort is by knowing others uh and yeah what a gift man and uh brother i'm grateful to know you and to be known by you and to do this show Uh, thanks for doing this thanks for um 
I'm grateful for all the trauma and the efforts you've been through that give you insight that, uh, I can benefit from and everybody listening to the show can. So, uh, thanks brother. Thanks brother. Thanks for having me on and for bringing stories like Peter's out into the world and, and, and my own as well. It's, it matters. And we're grateful for the megaphone that you provide there. My honor. Okay, friends, you can connect with Jared on Gaza at jaredongaza.com. And you can find Peter Mutarbazi's new book, Now I Am Known, anywhere. And visit nowiamknownfoundation.org to connect with Peter and, again, his incredible story. Thank you, as always, for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. Best thing you can do, talk about what you heard here with someone else. Talk about the issue of being enough and yet still aspiring with someone. Grapple with it. It's a good one. I sincerely hope today I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others. Mm